0: Today I would like to talk about Code Talkers. I'm working on a book for young readers about Code Talkers. Everyone seems to understand the name and they all identify it with the Navajos in World War II. But actually the Code Talking began in World War I. It was 1918, and World War I had been tearing up Europe for four bloody, exhausting years. United States soldiers had joined the fight year before, and they found themselves struggling through a wasteland of fog and mud. What had once been French towns and farms were now battlefields, so churned up by shells and trenches that they looked like the surface of the moon. Poison gas had killed much of the vegetation. Sounds of battle boomed all day long, and the men learned not to poke their heads out of their holes for fear of a German sniper's bullet. Like their allies, the U.S. doughboys, as our foot soldiers were known, longed for nothing more than a successful end to the fighting and a trip home. To make that happen, they hoped to launch a series of surprise attacks across the no-man's land the battle-scarred fields between the Allied and German trenches, and then drive the Germans out. The key to the success of the surprise attacks was secrecy. Battles are won and lost on the ability to communicate without the enemy listening in. And yet time and again, the Germans were prepared for the assaults. Clearly, they were hearing and decoding the messages that Allied commanders were sending to their troops. The U.S. 142nd Regiment from Oklahoma was in the thick of the fight in northern France. It had among its troops a number of Indians from the southwest, including Choctaws from Oklahoma. One day, a captain in the 142nd was walking past two Choctaw soldiers, Solomon Lewis and Mitchell Bob. When he heard them chatting to each other in their native language, the rhythmic words with their distinct consonants were completely different from English or from any European language he had ever heard. Even though the officer had heard the men speak Choctaw many times, he still could not understand a word of it. Suddenly, a light went on in his mind. This, he thought to himself, is our code. It's unbreakable. The need for such a code was great. Begun in 1914, World War I pitted the countries of Germany, Austria-Hungary, Bulgaria, Turkey, known as the central powers against the Allies, primarily Britain, and the countries it governed, such as India, as well as Russia, France, Italy, and later the United States. The huge conflict was war on a grand scale. It saw the use of weapons never before used in Combat, such as tanks, poison gas, flamethrowers, and airplanes. By the time the United States entered the war in 1917, more than 5 million soldiers had already been killed or wounded. There was no end in sight as both sides faced each other from trenches that were sometimes just a few hundred yards apart. The ditches stretched in a 400-mile line called the Western Front that ran through France and Belgium from the North Sea to to the Alps. The trenches were usually about four feet wide and about eight feet deep, and in some places much shallower, and were reinforced with sandbags, logs, or sheet metal. All along, both sets of trenches were strong points, sometimes built of concrete, backed up by by machine guns short trenches that extended about thirty feet toward the enemy line allowed sentries to listen for enemy troops attempting to sneak up at night between the trenches was the area known as no man's land a dangerous open space between the tangled barbed wire that protected each side. No matter how realistic the training had been, however, nothing could have prepared the Americans for the horrors of the Western Front. Enemy shells rained down on them with a shriek, blowing craters into the ground. Because the trenches were often knee-deep in water, a wounded soldier might drown in the mud. Rats were everywhere, feeding on food scraps and on dead soldiers. Bodies were often buried near the trenches, where the artillery brass would dig them up again. Troops were scattered for miles, from soldiers in the front-line trenches to support teams and high-ranking officers in camps behind them. Commanders had to be able to talk to the men at the front, sending new orders warning them of coming attacks and learning about the conditions on the battlefield. Before the Americans arrived, the Allies had tried a variety of communication systems, such as runners, pigeons, dogs, telegraphs, telephones, and wireless radios to send messages, but each had its own problems. Runners had one of the most dangerous jobs in the war because the soldiers had to leave the safety of the trenches, cross open ground, and be exposed to enemy fire. Death or capture were a constant threat. In fact, the Germans killed or captured one in four of the Allied runners. Trained pigeons also carried messages. Carrier pigeons could fly over a hundred miles at an average speed of fifty miles an hour. When a bird arrived, it would trigger a wire that rang a bell and alerted the handler, but pigeons were easily spotted and shot. In one famous incident, American troops trapped behind enemy lines in 1918 were being shelled accidentally by their own side. They launched two of their pigeons toward headquarters, only to see them shot down. Finally, they released their last bird named Cher Ami, French for dear friend. With the message, it said, we are along the road parallel 276.4. Our artillery is dropping a barrage directly on us. For heaven's sake, stop it. Despite taking shots in the chest, leg, and eye, Cher Ami reached headquarters within a half hour and saved the men's lives. Dogs were messengers too. Some 20,000 of them served during the war. Most were family pets donated in the war effort or strays taken from pounds. Dogs were sent out when conditions were considered too dangerous for human messengers. Because they were fast and their bodies were low to the ground, they were less likely to be shot than runners, and they could cross rivers, hills, forests more easily than humans could. Trained to find their way to their keeper's station, dogs could cover 10 to 15 miles in one or two hours. One such messenger was a black crossbreed with the name of Satan, not for his behavior but because of his dark coat. He moved with lightning speed. French soldiers were trapped without communications near the city of Verdun in 1916 when they saw the dog dashing toward the across the battlefield, dodging back and forth to avoid bullets as it had been taught. Despite its skills, it was shot twice, but still Satan ran on. Satan reached the troops with messages from headquarters and two carrier pigeons in baskets on its back. Dogs such as Satan were fine messengers, but they had one drawback. Their companionship was so highly valued in the trenches that soldiers hated to send them out into danger. They would often offer to deliver messages in their place. Troops also used flags or lamps based on the Morse code, but these were easily spotted and the people using them were easily shot. Mechanical communication systems such as the telegraph, telephone, and wireless radio were available but each also had drawbacks. The telephone and telegraph were good at sending messages over long distances but they were linked by wires and when the fighting started these were easily cut or disconnected. Besides that the Germans were skilled at intercepting and decoding their messages. The Allies tried everything to form complicated codes but the Germans managed to intercept and figure out almost every message the Allies sent. As a result, surprise attacks seldom succeeded. Both sides remained entrenched month after month, year after year. In the meantime, an entire generation of soldiers was dying in artillery attacks, frontal assaults in which the opposite sides fired directly into each other, poison gas, and disease, including pneumonia and influenza. All of this changed once the United States entered the war in 1917. Thousands of Americans joined the fight, either by volunteering or through the draft. Although most Indians in 1917 could not be drafted because they were not U.S. citizens, they enlisted in astonishing numbers. The Bureau of Indian Affairs later declared that of the 10,000 Native Americans who served in the army and the 2,000 who served in the navy, fully three out of four were volunteers. In fact, it was the overwhelming support of Native Americans for the war effort that led to their eventual citizenship. In 1919, the U.S. government granted citizenship to the Indian veterans of the war, and then, by act of Congress in 1924, all Indians were granted citizenship. Even then, however, many states did not allow Indians to vote. The Great War, as World War I came to be known, proved an important moment for America's native peoples. In just a few months, they established a remarkable record of patriotism and heroism in a fight they didn't have to join. Typical of Indian patriotism and heroism were Foster DeCora and his son Robert Ho-Chunks, Winnebago's from Wisconsin. Both were killed on the same day, August 1, 1918. The first decorated war hero from South Dakota was Chancy Eaglehorn, who was killed in France. His father had fought Custer at the Battle of the Little Bighorn. Joe Younghawk, the son of one of Custer's Arikara scouts at the battle, was wounded and taken prisoner by the Germans, but he later escaped after killing three of his guards and capturing two others. The greatest contribution the Indian Dovoys made to the war effort, as the officers realized in the fall of 1918, was not their battlefield heroism, although there was plenty of that, but it was their language. In U.S. Army's 36th Division, 142nd Regiment alone were Indians speaking 26 different languages or dialects, none of which the Germans could understand or translate. Organized as regular infantry soldiers who fight on foot and given training in Camp, Camp Bowie near Fort Worth, Texas, the first unit of the 142nd Regiment traveled to France in May 1918, the last group in August of that year. On October 6th, the regiment moved to the Western Front. It was then and there that the officer overheard the Choctaw off soldiers and had his code-talking brainstorm. Within days, the army selected a number of Indians for training in their telephone squad. Right away, they found one challenge. The Choctaw vocabulary didn't have any words for military equipment and movements. No matter, the Choctaws worked around it to devise a secret vocabulary. A big gun meant a cannon a tribe was a regiment, a grain of corn was a battalion, a stone was a hand grenade, poison gas was bad air, casualties were scalps, tanks were turtles, and a patrol was many scouts. As well as Choctaws, Indian doughboys from other tribes including the Cheyenne, Comanche, Cherokee, Osage, and Yankton Sioux are also known to have sent messages in their own languages. None of them could be called code talkers because they did not use codes. They simply spoke to each other other unknown languages speech that no German could recognize or understand. A captured German later admitted that his side could not make any sense of the Indian messages that they intercepted. What language were they speaking, he asked. His captors told him American. Within 24 hours after the Choctaw telephone messengers began their work, the tide of battle turned. Within three days, the Germans were retreating and the Allies were on full attack. The armistice that ended World War One was signed on November eleventh, 1918, just a month after the first Choctaw Code was sent across enemy lines. Indian soldiers went home to their families and to a country that at the time paid little attention to their part in ending the war. However, at least some in the army remembered, when the Second World War loomed, the country would turn once again to its American Indian soldiers for their unique languages. And that's a story to come later. Thank you.